Live from WNUR News, I'm Iris Swarthout. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Wednesday, May 11th. Tonight on WNUR News, the continuing debate on Roe v. Wade's legal precedent. Marvel's newest foray into television, Moon Knight, and what some Northwestern students think about this season's awards. Those stories coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in on this beautiful Wednesday. In November 2018, a federal judge blocked a Mississippi law that barred abortions after 15 weeks, a ruling that triggered the Supreme Court's adjudication of the legal precedent. Here's Angelina Campanelli with the story. Texas patients across state lines to terminate their pregnancies. What makes this abortion law interesting is that it's enforced by private citizens. Find yourself in Texas and you can sue anyone you believe has aided or abetted a woman who's received an abortion in the state after six weeks of pregnancy. The Justice Department argues this law directly conflicts with the constitutional right to privacy established nearly 50 years ago in the case of Roe v. Wade. The Supreme Court will also hear a case next month regarding the constitutionality of a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The law leaves no exceptions for rape or incest. WNUR News sat down with Director of Legal Studies at Northwestern University, Joanna Grissinger. We wanted to know what upholding these statutes could mean for the future of abortion rights in America. What does the Constitution say or not say about the right to an abortion? Mostly when we're talking about the Constitution, we're talking about Supreme Court cases about the Constitution, interpreting the constitutional language. And so when we talk about abortion, there is a constitutional right to privacy located in a a number of cases, but Griswold v. Connecticut and Roe v. Wade in, in particular. Um, as grounding the right to terminate a pregnancy as part of a broader right to privacy um, protected by the 14th Amendment. And what did the court rule in Roe v. Wade? The court ruled in Roe that a woman's right to privacy exists from the beginning of her pregnancy on. The state can start regulating for the health of the woman and the health of the procedure in roughly the second trimester of pregnancy. And then the state can start regulating abortion to protect the interests of the viable fetus at the point of viability, which is roughly the third trimester. Um, It's worth noting that as much as we talk about Roe v. Wade, uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, um, a 1990s case, really undid a lot of the structures of Roe, but did reaffirm the idea that a woman does have, within the right to privacy, a constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy. Viability in some states is 22 weeks, 24 weeks, 26 weeks. Who determines what viability is? It's a great question in the sense that it's not entirely clear. The the point of viability keeps being pushed further and further up. The court hasn't really gone into the specifics of viability, but it's just sort of using viability as a general point. The more recent cases have just sort of moved well, well, well before viability. So there was certainly a critique of the decisions that viability keeps being sort of a moving target as medical you know, science gets better and better. So correct me if I'm wrong, states cannot outright ban abortion. Under the existing precedence of the Supreme Court, 
states may not entirely ban abortion. So how restrictive can a state's abortion law get before it's unconstitutional? Well, ultimately unconstitutional is whatever the Supreme Court says, right? Under Casey, um, a state may not impose an undue burden on a woman's ability to terminate a pregnancy. Now, how undue is undue? What is a burden? So suggesting that they can impose a burden. It just can't be an undue burden. And so a lot of the last decade or so of regulation has been about, well, what about this? What about this? We can, what if we put this burden on? What if we put this burden on? Um, how, how, what, how far does it have to go to become an undue burden? A lot of the focus of states trying to ban abortion, but really states trying to um, limit abortion were through um, a variety of laws trying to really test the boundaries of what made something an undue burden on abortion. So Texas and Mississippi have gotten these cases mm -hmm. before the Supreme Court. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. So with the new 6-3 conservative majority, has the likelihood increased, do you think, of overturning Roe v. Wade? Do you, what kind of effect do you think that new ratio will have on this case? I mean, I, you know, all attempts to predict the Supreme Court are on some level, you know, just uh, staring into a crystal ball. Well, what do you think based on your studies of these cases? Um, I will say, I, I think it's anytime the Supreme Court even takes a case, there's a real signaling aspect to that, right? What the Supreme Court gets it is offered lots of cases it could grant cert to every, um, every term. So why is it taking a particular case? It seems more likely to everyone who's sort of trying to figure out what the court's going to do that they're taking it because they do want to engage with the question of abortion, the right to privacy, what that all looks like. Um, and so that combined with the you know 6-3 majority, um, I think a lot of people are very worried for the future of Roe and Casey. Are you worried? Yes. I think, you know, in terms of where the action would be the next day if the Supreme Court did overrule Roe, um, the next day it would be a question for state legislatures about what they're going to do. Um, are they going to ban it? Are they going to protect it? Are they going to limit it? Because then they can sort of do anything they want. Um, so that's sort of one question. The next question would then be, are, would people in Congress, if, you know, if anti-abortion um, politicians, one of both houses of Congress, would they pass a... Um, federal ban on abortion. So even the states that wanted to have legal abortion could not have legal abortion. So that's the next, an, another open question. Mm. Grissinger says there's no way to uphold the Texas and Mississippi laws without overruling court precedent or dramatically rewriting laws regarding abortion restrictions in the United States. Next week, I'll be homing in on the repeal of the Parental Notification of Abortion Act and what that means for minors and parents in the state of Illinois. Be sure to tune in and check our website, WNUR.news, for more on today's debate over abortion rights in America. For WNUR News, I'm Angelina Campanile. Thanks for listening. Moving on to arts and entertainment, Marvel's Moon Knight series follows the story of a gift shop clerk turned vigilante in its six-part Disney Plus series. Campus local editor Maria Jimena Aragon tapped into the hype surrounding the show. Minor spoilers ahead. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is expanding, and while following a hero's journey is nothing new to the MCU, none have had to handle Egyptian gods battling in the forefront quite like Moon Knight.
Being the first Wednesday since the six-part series concluded on Disney+, Plus, I decided to chat with someone who knows about the comics much more than I do. My name is Matt Griffin. Um, I'm a Northwestern alumnus. I majored in radio, TV, film, and religious studies. And now I am a media studies PhD student at the University of Iowa. Okay, so for some context, in 2018, you completed your senior thesis on Moon Knight, specifically the psychological religious tensions found in the series to explore the significance of mythology and religion in modern society. That's, that's a mouthful. How did you develop this connection? Uh, yeah, so I, um, I really liked Moon Knight as a kid. I think part of it that was interesting to me, um, you know, I was raised Catholic and I went to Catholic school and um, reading the original comic series from the 1980s uh, talks a lot about uh, sort of religion, again, as you said, from the perspective of mental health. Um, and so that I think was just very interesting to me. And then I was very, I was a double major in religious studies and film and the religious studies department was very, uh, nice and let me do lots of weird media things as it related to religion. Um, and I, it just so happened that, uh, professor Kiekeffer, um, in the religious studies department knew someone who knew someone who knew Doug Mensch, who's the co-creator of Moon Knight. And so I just sort of heard like, oh, if you're interested in the character, we there's this sort of uh, connection to them. So then once I heard that, I thought that was really cool. And then I got to interview Doug Mensch through that connection. And then that sort of turned into my thesis. What came out of that conversation with Doug Mensch? I imagine it must have been exciting and a little bit nerve wracking. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, he, I was very nervous um, and he was, he was, you know, in, just incredibly nice. And I was, you know, as a student, you're thinking like, oh, I'm talking to this person who's a really big deal, but he was just very casual um, and nice. And I basically kind of gave him an overview of some of what uh, the religious studies work was on. And then I talked to him about some specific, I talked to him about sort of developing Moon Knight overall um, in terms of the connection to like the idea of Kanchu and the idea of mental health and sort of what he was trying to do with some of that. And then we did more of a deep dive into a few specific, I chose three specific uh, Moon Knight comic book stories he wrote and sort of talked to him about uh, just how the themes in those specific stories related to what he was trying to do, so... You mentioned that Moon Knight grapples with larger issues of trauma and mental health, something we're now seeing reflected in other shows such as WandaVision and Loki. How important is reflecting a character's struggles from page to screen? Yeah, so there's a lot of discussion about, um, and so now I should say I'm in a media studies PhD program. So I'm um, thinking a lot about these things myself now in my own work. So. Um, one thing that gets talked a lot about is not just uh, media representation, which I think is a thing a lot of people are sort of have that discussion now, but also the idea of um, resonance with sort of showing more very specific, fully formed characters, not just maybe like checking a box where you say, oh, this character, uh, we mentioned that they have some sort of mental health issue, but rather saying um, really going into how it 
impacts their life in a more three-dimensional way. Um, there's a lot of media studies work on sort of the importance of that deeper perspective. And I think with Moon Knight, um, especially in the interviews about the show, you see the creators talking about that. And at the end of the show, I think every episode ended with um, like a number for um, some mental health services you could call. So um, what's interesting to me about it is, yeah, the way it becomes really, it is important on its own in sort of promoting those, those benefits for viewers, but also um, how it becomes a sort of a business and economic and branding consideration for Marvel and other companies that want to be engaged in those conversations. Definitely, those important conversations are happening. And then there's also a lot of fun ones. How did you feel or what was your reaction when you heard that Disney Plus was going to bring this series to life? Yeah, I was very excited whenever, I don't remember, at some point in the past few years when they announced it, I remember um, being on my laptop and just seeing like, at the they just released, I think, just like a logo and I just remember looking at that and being like, oh, that's so exciting because I'm, you know, too much into all the social media rumors of it all. And for a long time, there were rumors about, oh, the character might appear in this or this. And so it was very exciting to see like an official statement about it. Um, and yeah, the show, I, I personally, I really liked the show. Um, I, it was definitely like appointment TV for me it became something where I tend to watch shows in the evening. So it became something where I would avoid social media all day because of spoilers. Um, yeah. And I, I think the thing that meant to, that for me meant the most about the show was that um, as we were talking about like mental health struggles and that they portrayed him as someone who you could really like root for and someone who you could identify with Um as opposed to someone who you were supposed to feel distant from, or like he's some sort of monster um, that the, the very sort of like human approach to it. I really appreciate it. Okay. If you had to pick a favorite between Mark Spector, Stephen Grant, or Jake Lockley, who would you choose? Interesting question. Um, to be friends with, I feel like, as portrayed on the show, to be friends with, I would definitely say Stephen. He just seems like, you know, the night, the nicest. Um, I, I really like that they started with him because you just like want you, he's very likable and you want to root for him and you feel bad for him. Um, so I would say Stephen is first in terms of someone who I might want to be friends with. And then Mark seems very, uh, traumatized and you know you can feel his struggle and jake we don't know too much about jake yet but maybe not someone to be friends with what do you believe makes the marvel universe so unique so with a whole slate of disney plus shows lined up and new movies essentially coming out every month what keeps fans excited i think the amount of i think they generally not all the time but i think frequently they do a nice balance of projects that are enjoyable on their own plus teasing future things i think that, that sort of episodic versus serialized more so than other franchises they have a good mix of um and like moon knight was more of its own thing almost almost entirely i can't really think of any big other marvel like they weren't teasing you know the next spider-man movie in it or something um so i think that's a big part of it and that on something like Disney plus because we're 
over a decade into this franchise that on Disney Plus they can do things where I don't think this version of Moon Knight could have been a movie. And this is like, I guess, sort of a compliment, but also a criticism that they sort of experiment just enough each time that it's a new thing. So. With a second season yet to be confirmed, this reporter will be practicing her backflips and listening to the soundtrack in the meantime. For WNUR News, I'm Maria Jimena Aragon. On Monday, Tony Award nominations were announced amid a controversial award season. Cue the Oscars Will Smith slap. But how much weight do Northwestern students put on these awards? Ellie Skelly has the story. And the Oscar goes to... Who could forget this year's Oscars? Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Yet, despite the draw of internet attention and the most vicious breed of Twitter debate, the Oscars saw its second lowest viewership and rating performance in the history of the show. I am a terrible film major, and I, I don't think I saw a single one of the movies that was like nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars last year. That was freshman Ethan LeBow. Despite studying film, in his personal life, he doesn't feel the need to watch the Oscars, and he really doesn't even care about the awards. I think that it's good to have... Uh, award shows as like a fun thing and like as a, a measure of what's popular, but on an individual level, I, you know, decide for yourself. For Ethan, he turns a blind eye to critical acclaim and recognition for his favorite movie of all time, Superbad. Yes, the cult classic Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg comedy featuring two teenage boys played by a young Michael Sarah and Jonah Hill and their mission to illegally secure alcohol and get the girl before the end of high school. They let you pick any name you want when you get down there. And you landed on McLovin. Yeah, I was between that and Muhammad. <laughs> Do you think it matters if Superbad has like won an Oscar or would that change your opinion of it at all? I think that'd be very weird if that happened, but um, no, that would not change my opinion of it. What Ethan brings up is the significant disconnect between popularity and artistic acclaim. According to the New York Times, in the past 30 years, only four films were named Best Picture while topping box office charts. This is something freshman computer science major Marianne Cano takes into account when watching award shows. I watched the Grammys and I sometimes watch the Oscars, depending on the year. Why depending on the year? Because sometimes there's movies that interest me. I'm like, oh, I want to see, like, did they win? And other times like the ones up for all the you know the biggest awards i've never seen i honestly hadn't even heard of them that year until the like nominations list came out and so why am i going to watch something that i don't even recognize and though the grammys also saw the second lowest ratings and viewership this year marion said she was more familiar with the content and therefore more invested in seeing how her favorites compete. I, I do listen to a lot of music. Like this year, Olivia Rodrigo was up, Doja Cat was up, and I like, I love all of them. So I wanted to be there to like, you know, see if the people that I'm watching are gonna win the awards. Yet, she was left disappointed. 
especially with John Batiste winning Album of the Year. I hadn't heard of him before the Grammys. Um, I don't think anyone really had. And that's not just to say, like, I'm not well-versed in music. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Who knows? Um, But truthfully, I'm not sure he was ever at, like, the top charts, like, the Billboard top charts. He never really gained too much of a radio presence. And so I guess he didn't reach as many people, but somehow he's winning like the most like acclaimed awards at the Grammys. Like, I'm not sure how that works. Overall, Marion questions the calls made by award shows to claim one form of media superior to another, specifically when it goes against the masses opinion. If the masses are liking something, whether it be a movie or whether it be a certain artist or a certain album, that has something to say about it. Like, the general public isn't going to like garbage, you know? So, um, if that's what people are flocking to, that sort of acts as its own vote. You know, that's what people are loving. So, if people are loving that, why wouldn't that be winning awards? Freshman journalism major Jacob Wendler also notices the gap between popular media and award recognition. It's often forgotten in conversations about award shows and nominations um, and that there's there's lots of music and, and shows and movies that I've seen that I've really enjoyed that might not necessarily fit the criteria for what's deemed award worthy within these academies. For him, the Tony nominations announced Monday came as something of a surprise with two of the most popular theater productions lacking in critical raves and award luster. Um, I found it interesting that the uh, recent arrival of Funny Girl starring Beanie Feldstein didn't score any nominations. Um, I, I think that the Jesse Green, the New York Times chief theater critics uh, review ha- had some adverse effects on that and also the fact that it was released pretty recently. Um, and another one I guess that I was somewhat surprised about was Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick in the Broadway revival of the Neil Simon comedy um, Plaza Suite, which I saw and I enjoyed, although I, I'm not I'm surprised because they're big stars, although I I can see why um, the Academy chose the way it did. The Tonys will be on June 12th. The outcome of the Tonys and whether this gap in opinion will continue to broaden remains to be seen. For WNUR News, I'm Ellie Skelly. Now, a look at the weather. Today, Evanston residents enjoyed the high 70s and sunny skies. Going into tonight, temperatures will dip to the mid-60s, but will hike up to the upper 70s over the next few days once again with partial cloud cover. Winds are currently hanging around 10 miles per hour and will continue to do so towards the end of the work week. Our brief summer interlude will be interrupted this weekend with rain Saturday and Sunday. Temperatures will lie in the high 60s with winds around 5 miles per hour. And here are your headlines for tonight. The newest addition to residential areas at Northwestern, which were created several years ago, are area councils. These governing bodies, for which there is one each for the north, northeast, south, and southwest areas of campus are made up of students who will run programming for the residents in their respective areas. The new Chicago ward map is finished, and City Council will vote on it next week. The proposed map creates 16 majority black wards 
14 majority Latino wards and Chicago's first majority Asian American ward. While some groups are satisfied, others are upset, like the Latino Caucus, who fought to have 15 majority Latino wards instead of the already established 14. One of Illinois' only historically black colleges, Lincoln College, is shutting down after 157 years. The college president stated that the college's enrollment severely decreased during COVID and they do not have sufficient funds to reopen in the fall. Congress will hold a vote today for a bill proposed by Democrats that, if passed, would enshrine abortion access into federal law. This comes after a leaked Supreme Court draft indicating that the court plans to overturn Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion nationwide. Republicans are expected to block the bill. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our website, WNUR.news. That's WNUR.news. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer today is Zach McCrary, and our reporters are Angelina Campanelli, Maria Jimena Aragon, and Ellie Skelly. From all of us here at WNUR News, I'm Iris Swarthout. Thanks for listening. Catch our next newscast on Friday, May 13th at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.